It's very good to be with you again. I want you to know that I can get very frustrated uh, after 300 hours of study and 20 hours of messages to come to you and try and deliver this in six. So therefore, I'll start this morning with a commercial. Uh, Those of you who would like to hear more of this in detail and uh, a little bit more practical, a little bit more uh, scripture in the sense of really beginning to delineate all the principles that you've heard us discuss in the previous week and the weeks to come, that there are two tape albums, one Let the Women Be Women and one Let the Men Be Men, (coughs) that are available, and you can sign up with Kenny Lauman in the back there. Uh, The women's album is $15. If you can't pay for it, we'll give it to you. The men's album is $13. And uh, that is not making any money. It's just uh, making the tapes available to you. So if you're interested in that, you can do that through Ken Lauman in the back. One of the biggest questions that we have had, and maybe those of you who've cut the other chapels uh, need to bring you up to speed. The biggest issue that has been discussed is the really the balance between uh, preparing for marriage and uh, living out your single life to the fullest. And the answer to the question is to fill out your life right now, to minister like crazy, to give yourself to Jesus Christ and to his work and to his kingdom. But at the same time, don't forsake your preparation of being a godly man, a godly woman, and in the area of being a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly father or a godly mother. Those are the areas that you shouldn't put on the back burner for the very reason that your greatest ministry, without any debate, will be your role in your family. Your family is to be your highest priority ministry. Amen? Therefore, what a shame it would be for you to put those areas on the back burner until you became uh, a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. Preparation, living out those things now as goals in your life will assist you in being all that Jesus wants you to be. That's what this series is all about. Well, let's begin. Before the time of Christ... In the ancient Near East, there was a particular custom that an ancient culture took in punishing a murderer. And what they would do is they would take the murdered man, the dead murdered man, and they would tie his body face to face with his murderer. And then they would pry open both their mouths And they would force their heads together so that it appeared as if the murderer was giving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to his dead victim. They would leave them in this position for several days. The reason that they did this is that after a few days, even though the murderer could stay alive for several days, eventually the dead impurities of the dead man would make their way from the dead man into the living man and then would kill the living man. And thus, in a way, they thought that justice was satisfied since the dead victim then killed his murderer. Now, the reason I share that with you is that you don't have to go to the ancient Near East to see that happen in a spiritual perspective every day. All you have to do is look at living Christians going mouth to mouth with a dead world system And you'll find Christians strewn here and there because they have taken in all those dead impurities and eventually their spiritual life is killed. They find themselves flat on their back going, what happened? How come I feel far from God? How come I have compromised in this particular area? And nothing, I believe, has caused a greater love affair with the world than in the area of purity. 
And if you open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, you'll find that that is the next essential quality. The next essential goal of the young woman is purity. And in the ancient Near East and in Roman times, the reason that Paul has shared this with Titus is because being a Christian, a woman gained new freedoms. She was no longer a slave to her own household, locked in a room, only leaving that room with the express permission of her husband. Basically, a slave of the house. As a Christian, she gained new freedom. She was able to go house to house. But at the same time, she was expected to remain pure. And nothing is more essential in our day than sexual purity. And that's exactly what Titus 2 is talking about. Since nearly half of our nation's 15 to 19 year olds have already had sexual intercourse. Over half. By 19 years of age, one-fifth of the men in our country and one-third of the women in our country admit that they have not had sexual intercourse. And over 83% of all college graduates basically confess that they would rather and prefer to have sex before marriage. That makes this area, this topic, absolutely essential and crucial for the single Christian woman and the single Christian man. And this morning, as we discuss this particular area, I'd like to discuss three aspects of the area of purity, and then we'll move on and complete the rest of the qualities this morning. Why is there such a problem with purity? Why, what is God's perspective on purity, and what's the biblical procedure in staying pure? Very simply. I really believe that the reason why, and the problem with sexual purity, and why it is such a problem with the Christian and the non-Christian today, is that both believe the lies that the enemy has spread and sowed in our society concerning the area of sex. Let me share some of those lies with you. The first lie is that sex is the most important thing in the world. After all, every commercial, every magazine, every movie make it basically the most important thing. And if you are really honest with yourself, and I don't mean to be frank with you, but I want to be sincere with you. If you are honest with yourself, if you were to view marriage and picture it as a building or a house, you girls would have a a definitive perspective of what it's all about. Your view of marriage would be a nice kitchen, a nice living room, a nice bedroom, a well-balanced den, a good-sized bathroom. It would be just a nice, even picture. For you men, if you were to be honest with your perception of marriage, it would be an okay-sized den with a nice lounge chair. There would be a good living room. There would be a nice bathroom, a huge kitchen, and an enormous bedroom. Because that's your perception of what marriage is all about for the American male. We have bought the lie. Yet the Bible says that part of life is to be enjoyed... And sex is part of life to be enjoyed in marriage, but it is not the most important. The second lie about sex is that you must try it now to gain experience so that you'll be ready for marriage and find out if you are compatible. Kind of a free home trial mentality. Recently, when we thought we heard it all, the elders marriage council at our church had a mother of a couple, uh, a mother of a daughter of a particular couple that was seeking marriage come in and demand that we not allow the couple to get married. Her reason, her future son-in-law and her daughter had not had premarital sex and therefore how could they know that they were meant for each other? 
It's true, which is a lie in and of itself. Think for a moment, people. If there was such a thing as incompatibility, there would not be a human race. Simple. What about the millions of couples who have gotten married who have never seen each other prior to their wedding day and they turned out okay? Really, all males and all females are sexually compatible, but few really want to work at it in marriage. That's our problem today. You know, the next time that someone says to you that you need to be promiscuous in order to find out whether you're compatible, or they criticize you for being a virgin, you just tell them this. You tell them to stick their head in a moving cement mixer. After all, you'll never find out if you're compatible unless you try it. The third crafty lie is the person who says that marriage or just sex itself is what cures lust. Unfortunately, if that were true, and I believe that there are many single people who view that particular lie. If that were true, there would never be any adultery, would there? If marriage cured lust? But we know that's not true because our society is full of it. Self-control is what cures lust, and that's what you need to develop now. The fourth lie is one that says that if I'm in love, then premarital sex is okay. The only problem with that mentality is absolutely contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain, flee, get away from, stay away from it, don't touch it. Sexual immorality. It is against God's will and it will never be without guilt. And if you participate in it, you will scar your life forever. Yes, it can be forgiven. Yes, God can forgive you, but you will never forget it. The fifth crafty lie is one that says that only intercourse is wrong. And as long as we stop short of that, we're okay. The only problem with that view is that it views purity as Basically, simply an external act and not an internal attitude that seeks to please God and stay close to him and run from sin. You remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, don't you? In Matthew 5, 27, 28, you have heard that it is said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That means that you can sexually sin just by looking at another individual. And you men know that that's true. You know, the second or the third glance. Or even holding hands or just thinking about the opposite sex. Purity is an inner attitude that issues forth in behavior. The pure individual knows that purity starts in the mind and in the heart and acts accordingly. You know, it's only the hypocrite that justifies we we didn't go all the way. Another lie in the area of sexual purity is we think that it's okay to date as long as we date only those who are Christians. The only problem with that is that everybody who says that they're a Christian is not a Christian. And everybody that you go out with is not filled with the Spirit. Therefore, you're not only going to have to watch out for your own purity, but when you go in the dating process, you're going to have to watch out for that other person's purity as well and take responsibility. And never compromise. You need to recognize that it's not always going to be easy, even those who call themselves redeemed. And girls, you've got to stop saying to forward guys, I don't think this is right. You've got to stop saying to guys that I'm not sure we should be doing this. You've got to say and have the guts to say, knock it off, dirtbag. Well, if those are the problems, 
And we have bought those lies. And some of you, even as I spoke, your heads fell down in guilt. If that's the case, then what's God's perspective? If purity is such an important thing to the woman, and it's an essential goal for the role of the woman as well as the man, then what does God want from us? And basically, if I could be very brief and very simple with you, God's view of sex falls into three simple statements. The first statement is, God made sex for a man and a woman, a male and a female. Now that takes care of a lot of problems today, doesn't it? Don't miss the importance of that principle. It is God who made sex. It is God who created sex. It wasn't Hugh Hefner that created males. It was God. It wasn't Playgirl or Playboy magazine that created females. It was God. And in Genesis 2.18, God said it was not good for man to be alone. So he created woman. And in Genesis 2.24, he commanded that they leave their parents and they cleave or commit themselves to one another. And then they shall become one flesh. Notice that the physical aspect of that is the very last. That should be a hint to you. The second principle is that God made sex for marriage. Over 25 times in the New Testament, God said that premarital sex is wrong. It's wrong. It is a terrible sin outside of his design. Yet inside of marriage, Hebrews 13:4 says that it is honorable, which means that sex is not just okay to God, but it has his divine and joyous approval within marriage. The third positive principle for purity is that sex in marriage is for the enjoyment of the other partner. 1 Corinthians 7, 1-5 tells us that in marriage, the wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband, and to the husband's body belongs to the wife, and therefore they are for each other, not for themselves, which means that sex is not merely to find release. Sex is not for your own pleasure. Sex is not to cure lust. It is for the enjoyment of the other partner. Three very simple principles. The Bible spells it out a lot more dramatically and succinctly than I have just done. And if we would just live these three basic principles and all their implications, we would not only be happy individuals, we would be pure individuals. Now, if you attempt anything outside of God's design, I want you to hear this morning. And if you wear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. If you do anything outside of God's design, listen to the consequences. Sex outside God's design will never satisfy. Yes, there will be temporary pleasure. Yes, it may be fun, but there will be guilt and hurt and confusion that you'll never be able to erase. Sex outside God's design will become an all-consuming thing and it will dominate any relationship and take over that relationship. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sex outside God's design will scar your life forever. Once it's given away, it can never be taken back. And yes, again, it can be forgiven, but you'll never forget it. Sex outside God's design will involve a holy God who dwells within you in gross immorality. Sex outside God's design will break a clear command of Scripture and force God's vengeance upon you. And if you don't realize that or don't believe that, just look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. And also, it is the only sin that is not only against God and not only against your own body, but also every time that you commit sexual immorality, you sin against five individuals every time you do. God, you, that person that you've been promiscuous with, their future mate and your future mate. That's five. Every time. Well, if that's God's perspective, then what's the procedure? 
Let me be really, really to the point. If you're going to stay pure, first, it's going to require that you seek Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life as a Christian. In 1 John 3, 3, the Bible says this, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Listen, Christian, you have heard all the rules and all the regulations. You have had more chapels than this school on the area of sexual purity than any other school that I know about in one year. And you can hear it all, but if you don't seek Jesus Christ, it's for nothing. You can hear the rules, you can hear the legislation, you can hear the commands of Scripture, and you will go away and compromise this summer when you leave here if you do not seek Jesus Christ first in your life. If He is not your passion, if He is not your desire, if you don't desire to turn your focus upon Him, you will not keep all the rules and regulations. And some of you here know already that that is true. You knew it was wrong and you did it anyway because you did not seek Jesus Christ. You know, when a couple comes into my office, which they do throughout the year, and they come in and they say, you know, we've gone too far. What do we do now? You know what that is? That's a red flag. That's a red flag that their spiritual life is not in order. It's not so much that they compromised in that area, but they have let their Christianity degenerate to the point that Jesus Christ is not their first love, but they are their first love. Jesus says that we are to love Him in comparison to any other relationship. It looks like a love-hate relationship. Do you understand that? Luke 14. Our love for Him is to be so intense that every other love relationship that we have is to look like love-hate. That's what Jesus meant when he said that you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother, your father, your brothers, even your own life. You need to seek Jesus Christ. True purity is going to result as you seek Jesus Christ. And every time you compromise in that area, look to Jesus Christ in your relationship with him. Because that's where it starts. Just another very helpful area in the area of purity is that you need to stay sensible. We've already talked about sensibility. We'll talk about it again. But you've got to understand that the sensible Christian's first response to moral impurity is not to pray. It is not to read the word. It is not to feel bad. Understand that when you're in a situation, when you're about to compromise in the area of sexual purity, you don't do those things. The Bible says, flee, get out, run. You see, the sensible Christian recognizes that when the urges are there, prayer and Bible study aren't going to cut it. You've got to run. You've got to flee. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts. Now, I'd like to be real practical with you this morning. And I'd like to discuss what it means to flee. And I want to do it very quickly if I can. First of all, it means to prepare for situations. Just like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife... Christians must decide what to do what's right before they face impurity and flee sexual temptation. You know, if you're with your boyfriend, don't pray. Get out of the car. If you're in a situation where you get into trouble, call your dad. If your dad isn't in this area, call John MacArthur. He'll have a few choice things to say to your date. Call Russ Hodge. He'll have a few choice things to do to your date. Prepare in advance. Decide now, men and women, what you're going to do. If you don't draw the line when your passions are going, you're not going to draw the line. All you're going to do is listen to rationalization. Think about it. Prepare for situations. Flee in advance. The next area in fleeing would be to plan your environment. Think before you go to the beach at night to watch the submarine races. I want to be real practical this morning. 
think before you spend any time alone in that apartment or that home. You understand this, Christian, that staying public and staying active is a form of fleeing. A form of fleeing. Another way in which you flee is to pick your people. To pick your people. Don't go out with a flirt. Don't go out with someone whose biblical description is exactly like a harlot. Why would you want to go out with someone who is described as a harlot unless you want to use one or be one? Pick your people. Girls have the guts to say no when they call, especially a man who has a reputation that is not what it should be. Another way of fleeing is ponder your appearance. Think about what you wear. That involves both guys and girls. Another way is to is to not only ponder your appearance, but also to pounce on your thoughts. Remember that purity starts within and therefore it's going to start with thinking. That's why impurity is a red flag. That means that you have been thinking wrongly for quite some time and it's finally issued forth in your behavior. Think through that. What are you filling your mind with? Why don't you be like Job, who in Job 31.1 said, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I should not gaze at a virgin. I won't take that second or third look. I won't fill my mind with anything that would be compromising. Paralyze your glances. Paralyze your glances is another way to flee. And all these ways hopefully can be helpful to you to just think through what it means to be pure and how to stay pure. You know, for those of you here this morning who've given up too much already, you know, you've gotten a petting or you've gone all the way or it was a part of your past, I just want you to know that it's never too late to repent. It's never too late to repent. The Bible says that if you change and you turn from your sin, that Jesus Christ will wash you and cleanse you and make you whiter than snow and create in you a clean heart and a pure life and give you a joyous spirit and a willing, teachable life. One of your goals should be for some of you here to so radically change by pursuing Jesus Christ that when you tell your wife or husband to be about your past, which you will, They'll look at you square in the eye and they'll say, you're kidding. You? As they joyously forgive you as a fellow sinner saved by the grace of God. As my wife and I began our dating relationship, we made a covenant. We promised each other that we would not kiss each other or anyone else until we knew that God intended us to be husband and wife. We did that not because we were legalistic or not because we were weird. It was because we wanted to stay pure. And we did it at great effort. I mean, we came so close to touching lips. And we pushed that limit, that standard, to the very limit. But I want you to know that as tough as it was to be content with an occasional hug, that nothing the world can offer can come as close or even come close to that first kiss that we had the night that I asked her to marry me. They can't even touch it. It cannot hurt you to wait. It will hurt you if you don't. What will you do? That was Roman numeral four. Roman numeral five in the qualities and goals of a pure and righteous and godly woman, and especially a young woman, is domestically God's goal for the young woman is that she be a worker at home. If you look at Titus 2, you'll see that's next. 
This is very controversial today. It really shouldn't be. The Greek word is very simple. It means this. It comes from two words that mean to work at home. Isn't that deep? 1 Timothy 5.14 contains the same idea. It tells the young widows to get married, to have bare children, and to keep house. They are to keep house. They are to work at home. They are to do that thing. How does the world view the worker at home? That's how the world views the worker at home. It pictures her in prison. An overworked, confined slave, bored and frustrated, missing out in the good life. How does God view the woman who is a worker at home? God's view is a woman who fills out her role, committed to being a godly wife and mother. She has all this new freedom. She was not to go about from house to house, but when she was at home, she was to work at home. And positively, that means that she was to make her home a place of peace, a place of contentment and intelligence. She was to manage the affairs of her household in such a way that her children and her husband were blessed in countless ways. That's what it means to be a worker at home. Practically, that means that her work of housekeeping, picking up things, cleaning, budgeting, hospitality, shopping, cooking, washing, investing, nursing, chauffeuring, helping the poor and caring for her family is viewed by God as, catch this, spiritual ministry spiritual ministry in her lifetime and gals this is something to look forward to i think the average housewife will spend 99.6 hours a week working around the house in her life she will cook 35,000 meals she will make between 10 to 40,000 beds she will vacuum a rug a mile long and a tenth of a mile wide and she will clean 7,000 plumbing fixtures. Now, some of you are going to want to raise after this. And all of that work is viewed by God as spiritual work. Not because God said that all should be done for his glory or simply because of that, but that all should be done and all those things can be done pleasing him because that's what he has designed. See, he is the one who said that the woman is to be a worker at home. Not just watching TV, watching soap operas, but keeping the home a place where Christ is proclaimed and can be honored. The next quality of the woman is not only that she is to love her husband and that she is to love her children and that she is to be sensible and pure and a worker at home, but that she is also to be kind. She is to be kind, which means that she is not only to be good in character, but that she is one who follows hard after doing good deeds for her family and the saints and, and others in that order. She does good deeds for the Lord, for her family, the fellow saints and others in that order. She's a crafty woman. She spends her times making crafts. For others and gives them away. She's involved in displaying Jesus Christ by generously displaying good deeds to other people. She is kind and she expresses kindness, which is a verb in the text and other texts that are to be lived out in your life. Finally, she is not only to be kind, but she is also to be subject to her husband. She is to subject herself to her husband. So that the word of God is not dishonored. Now, how does the world view subjection? 
the world views subjection in the woman's role as a doormat. I want you to know that if you're going to live out God's role, you're going to have to go contrary to the role that you see up on the overhead. The role up on the overhead is exactly how the world views the role of woman. As a less than human slave, subject to the fleshly desires of her husband, who treats her as an inferior being, much like a pet around the house. What Paul is stating here is that the woman's subjection is a subjection that she takes upon herself. The woman subjects herself to her husband so that the word of God and Christianity and Christ himself are not slandered. She submits so that our faith is not suspect. Our faith is demonstrating not a lack of order, but definitely a biblical order. She submits or literally ranks herself under her husband as a military term so that God's reputation is not injured. It is he who has demonstrated this design and therefore it is his reputation that is at stake when a woman does not mutually and voluntarily submit herself to her husband. Since it's God who's designed that not only in the marriage relationship but also in church and in government and as well as the Godhead which we looked at before. Therefore, the wife who doesn't put herself under her husband's authority is really attacking the character and the wisdom of God. Now, what does submission mean? It means to fill out your role as a woman. Submission is living out the qualities that we have just demonstrated in Titus chapter 2. Submission is filling out your God-given role as a woman. It is active and not passive. Remember that, gals. You are the ones who submit. It is not your man who forces you to submit. When a woman submits, she is actively expressing trust to her husband. She is laying out an expectation upon him to fill out his role, his God-given role, and actively priming the pump for him to be the leader that he needs to be. When she submits, she expects him to fill out his role. Let me share with you how powerful expectation is. Recently, some psychologists at UCLA did an experiment. What they did is they told a faculty of an elementary school that they had the ability to predict who would be their late bloomers, who would be their A students for the next year. Just by giving an exam, they said, we can tell you who are going to be your best students. They told that to the teachers, but what they told them was a lie. They had no way of predicting who those students would be, but they tried an experiment. Their experiment was this. They gave an exam to the students and then random, randomly they picked certain students out of the B and C categories and they said, gave these to the teachers in an envelope, a sealed envelope, and said, those would be your A students for this year. After the year was over, they checked to see where these students were at. All of them had raised at least one letter grade overall. Their average had increased a whole point. And some of them, as impossible as it seemed, even increased in their IQ, which isn't supposed to happen. The only difference was that the teachers now expected these students to perform and to become great students. That was the only difference. 
Expectation is a powerful tool. And when you women in the future submit not to every man, but to the man that God brings in your life to be your soul mate for life, when you submit to that man, you lay out an incredible expectation for him to be all that Christ wants him to be. That's the beauty of submission. That's the beauty of the woman's role. Well, women, what are your goals? If your goals are merely to be a great servant for the king, if your goals are merely to be a good student and get a great degree, if your goals are merely just to be one who is known as a nice Christian woman, you'll be missing out, I believe, in the greatest time of your life in which to prepare to be an incredible significant impact for the kingdom of God. Don't forsake your ministry now. Give it everything you have. Don't lack involvement in the local body in serving Jesus Christ with a full heart. But never put on the shelf those qualities that God would see you develop now so that you might be an incredibly godly wife, an incredibly godly woman. Because it will be those things that will be your greatest impact for the kingdom of God if He calls you to be married. Women... Will you work at being maritally a lover of your husband? Will you work at being maternally a lover of your children? Will you put forth some effort now to be mentally sensible, to be morally pure, to be domestically a worker at home, socially kind and spiritually subject to your future husband-to-be? If I could challenge some of you, I would give you this one final challenge. And some of you, very few of you, but some of you will do this. Take each one of those qualities and assign them a day of the week. And strive each day to live out that quality and develop what God would have you be as a godly woman. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that as simple and as basic as some of these qualities are, that you would not allow us to pass them by. Free us from the curse of many Christian colleges, of complacency towards your word, of hearing so much Bible that we're not able to apply at all, so we train ourselves not to apply. God, help us to see these as absolutely essential goals, not for any other reason but to please you. Father, help us to recognize that these are the very goals that are lived out in the Proverbs 31 woman. These are the very attributes that that incredible woman displayed. And God, since that is true, give these gals the courage to seek out these particular goals and qualities in their lives and prevent these men from discouraging them in that pursuit. If anything, Father, move the men in this crowd to encourage them to be the godly woman that you would want them to be. We thank you for this time and we praise you for what you will do. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.